Well, I hope you're encouraged already this morning, and uh, I hope to add to that, because we've got a great passage to look at together. I'm a little worried, though, if Matt's right, and you can't get emotional when you're up front, when y'all going to have to find another pastor. <laughs> it just is part of the deal. <clears throat> um, I want to share with you one of my most uh, embarrassing moments took place <clears throat> a few years ago when we were at... Uh, Possum Kingdom Lake, where basically I grew up since I was a boy. We've been going out there as a family, so I kind of know the lake like the back of my hand. And one day I was uh, out looking at, uh, out on the lake, and I noticed this buoy that was just floating in the middle of the lake. And my first thought, well, that just must have come unattached somewhere, and it's just kind of floating free. And after that, I didn't pay much attention to it. But then later that same day, I came out and saw the buoy in a different place, still in the middle of the lake, and I'm thinking at this point, gosh, somebody needs to get that. It it's can, can be dangerous. I mean, it was a pretty large buoy, and, and so I thought, um, maybe we can do that. So later on, we were out on the lake um, doing our, our thing, skiing, and, and that kind of stuff, and I, there it was, the buoy, right in the middle of the lake, but now in a completely different place. And I'm thinking, this thing is just floating free. It's dangerous. So I told the Folks in our boat, I said, we need to go get that thing. Let's go pull up and, and get out of the water. So we pull up to the buoy, and uh, I get up there in front, and I grab that thing, and I mean, I tugged with all my might, and it would not move. And I thought, well, it's just got snagged on something, so let's maneuver this thing around and somehow get it loose and get it out of the water. And I'm pulling and tugging, and I look up, and about 100 yards away, there's another one that looks exactly like it. <laughs> And then another 100 yards behind that, one looked exactly like it. And I thought, oh, this buoy wasn't floating free. I've been at the lake for 40 years, and unbeknownst to me, the Texas Parks and Wildlife had come out and put channel buoys in the deepest part of the lake from beginning to end, and I'd never seen them before. <laughs> and so it didn't matter how hard I was going to pull on that thing. There was probably a 300-pound piece of concrete on the bottom of that deal. And it was not going to move. It was strong, it was deep, and it was secure. Well, I want you to know as we look at our passage this morning, the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about what he calls an anchor to our soul. And much like what I experienced on the lake that day, it is strong, it is deep, and it is secure. It's an anchor, as we'll learn, that ties us to heaven. It tethers us to the hope that we have in Christ because ultimately the anchor is Christ. That's how we are held secure. That's what we just sang about. So before we look at that in our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being together as a family and truly how sweet it is. And just seeing those kids this morning. <laughs> seeing sweet Annabelle. Seeing the seniors last week as I could remember literally some of the, the for them, the, the day they were born. Father, what a privilege to come to your word and to know that it is living and active and that there's something that's powerfully true and important for each of us individually to hear this morning. What a privilege to, to sing and exalt your name above all names, give praise and glory to your goodness. Father, we don't deserve any of this. 
But in your kindness and your love and your mercy, you have given it all. You're good and you're perfect. And we are grateful. So as we open up your word, open up our hearts and help us to see the truths that you intend to shape our lives with. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll pick up where we left off last. I'd love for you to, to read along with me if you would like. So I'll be, uh, begin in verse 9. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. It says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." As I think about this passage, the, the writer of this letter to the Hebrews is much like our own. It's a diverse audience with, with all kinds of people, with all kinds of faith. Some are true believers. Some, as we talked about last week, are just kind of pretending, just kind of going through the religious motions. Some are maturing in their faith. And there are some who have no faith at all. And so having just given that warning to us last week about the dangers of playing that religious game by just going through the motions without any meaningful life change, he now invites them to something better. It's what he says in verse 9, Beloved, we are convinced of better things for you. And I think about things like this whenever I hear that phrase, better things for you, things like security in the midst of doubt. Faith, hope in the midst of despair. Victory in the place of defeat. Acceptance in the place of condemnation. Those, those are things, because he says, these are the things that accompany your salvation. In other words, it's a package deal. When, when you have life in Christ, these are the things that come with it. And it says that God is not unjust. He's not withholding any of these things from you. The scripture tells us you have everything you need for life and godliness. He's, he's withholding nothing from you. There is a reward for faithful obedience. There's a benefit for walking in God's will. We, we see in verse 10 that, that the author is pointing to those who are ministering to other people. Those who are actively serving, which, which tells me that, that their growth was an outcome of their service. They were ministering not to gain assurance. Instead, they had assurance, and therefore they were giving that away. Unlike the apathy of the immature, he is encouraging the diligence of the faithful. As we see in verse 11, he, he points them to the assurance of their salvation. Their, their service is flowing out of that assurance. They're not working to gain something. They're working in gratitude for what they've been given. You see the difference? 
As we talked about last week, when, when our faith is immature, our heart is insecure. When our faith is immature, our heart is insecure, causing us to turn inward. It, it makes us more introspective. It makes us worry or doubt about where we stand and if we've done enough and, and, and those kinds of things. But those who are growing in their faith, instead of looking inward in doubt, they, they look outward with hope. They, they consider the needs of others as more important than their own. They share the hope of Christ with a heartfelt conviction. The author is highlighting examples of faith like this. He says in verse 12, don't be sluggish, but be imitators of people like this. People who are actively serving out of a hope-filled assurance. And you know what? We could say the very same thing about what is happening in the life of this church right now. I mean, just look, for example, at the life of Dick and Yvonne Courtney, who faithfully served, literally, not, I'm not exaggerating here. Literally discipling people until days before their death. Those are the kinds of people he's pointing to. Those are the examples that we should be imitating. I see the same thing in Larry and Nancy Brackett. In Mark and Bonnie Hardy. In, in, in David and Marianne Lukemeyer. And I could go on and on. And even in our younger generations. People like Claire Bruffy. Meredith Hardy. The Shubiakas. People who have an eternal perspective. Those who are looking for their future hope to dictate their daily decisions. Living life with that eternal perspective and holding loosely to the things of this world. And there are so many others that have that same example of faith in our church today. Remember, we, we talked about this last week, how, how discipleship is the mark of maturity. How discipleship is, is a fundamental attribute of the Christian life. As, as we pour our lives into others, as, as an overflow of all that, that Christ has poured into us. And our greatest joy is not ultimately found in what we gain. It's in what we give away. And I feel certain that all of us, at some level, in some way, have experienced that reality. Because when you truly love someone, your greatest joy is their highest good. I mean, let's take Christmas, for example, right? I'm sure that when you receive a gift from someone you love, you appreciate that gift, but the excitement pales in comparison to what the look that they have on their face when they open that special gift that you've given specifically to them. That's your greatest joy. Not what you received, but what you gave away. And it's the very same thing here. Looking outside of ourselves helps strengthen the hope that is within us. Now think about that, because it is, it, it is contradictory to what we see in the world today. The world will tell you just the opposite, that true happiness is found within. That's a lie. True happiness is found without. 
It's in giving your life away. It's another upside-down principle of the Bible, and the Bible is full of them. Because the priority for our growth isn't in what we gain, it's in what we give away. Considering the needs of others is more important than our own. Our spiritual maturity is developed through faithful service. Ministering to the needs of others is more important than our own. I think sometimes we, we look at that wrong because we think about it as all, it's all about what I gain, all about what I learn, all about what I consume, that that's how I grow and develop. And there's certainly a piece of that. We want to be students of God's word. We want to be students of our wife's heart. We want to be students of our kids' lives. We want to learn. But ultimately, our growth is taking out of what we learn and giving something to them in ministering to other people, in loving our wives, in caring for our kids, in caring for one another. That's where our true growth and maturity is gained. Not in what we gain for ourselves, but what we give away to others. Look at how he continues in verse 13. He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So, having highlighted the examples of faith within that, the context of that body of believers serving in the church, he now turns to the example, the Old Testament example of Abraham. And this was important because the Hebrew Christians reading this letter that was written to them are ultimately the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham. And by looking back at God's faithfulness in the past, they can look forward with hopeful expectation of his faithfulness in the future. So the author takes the reader all the way back to Genesis 12 when God first called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. In chapter 12 of Genesis, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and, and make your name great so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I didn't notice that this until I just read this, but I want you to look back again. And I will, look at what he says. I will bless you and make your name great, and so shall you be a blessing. I am blessing you with the purpose of you being a blessing to other people. This is not primarily for your own good. It's through you to the lives of others around you. Do you see that? God promised Abraham a land. A land that we will soon know from Scripture as the land of Israel. He promises him a seed which ultimately are his descendants, which, as we also see in Scripture, later are identified as, as, as multiplied as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the heaven. He promises him a blessing, 
a blessing that extends beyond his own progeny to the families of the earth, a, a divine promise that is later affirmed in Genesis chapter 15. It's a covenant ceremony. And what we learn in Genesis chapter 15 is that this divine promise made by God to Abraham was unconditional, unilateral promise. In other words, it's not a contract. It's not contingent upon the contributions of the the parties in agreement. This is a divine promise by God to Abraham, unilateral, unconditional. But it impacts all of humanity. We see that because it says, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. So despite the sinful behavior of humanity, God will be faithful to his promise. That's the unconditional part. We're not earning his favor. He's promising his favor. That's the point of verse 14 in our passage. It says, he will surely, he will certainly, he will undoubtedly fulfill his promise. A promise according to his absolute unopposed authority. He promises according to his own authority because there's no authority higher, is there? Which is very different than what happens with us when we make a promise or an oath. Just think about when when someone is sworn into office, right? What do they do? They put their hand on the Bible and they make a promise. A promise to a higher authority because God is their witness and he's the one to whom they are ultimately accountable. And since there was no authority higher than God, it says that God made his promise according to his own authority. And yet, as we learn in Scripture, that the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham didn't actually take place until 25 years after it was made. He was around 75 years old when God first called Abraham, but he was 100 years old before Isaac was born. Which is why it says in verse 15 that Abraham patiently waited. But did he? I mean, I don't know about you, but I read that in our passage and I thought, did he? Because you'll remember he, when, when his wife Sarah was able to have children, you know, remember, this is 25 years. So after a long time, it, it was clear that she was barren, then then that must mean the promise must be fulfilled through someone else. And so he had a child through his maidservant, Hagar. But as I thought about it, I don't necessarily think it was because he was impatient. I believe it was because his faith was immature. He thought God needed his help to fulfill his promise. You see, what Abraham is doing here is he's applying human reasoning to try and understand a divine promise. He and Sarah agreed on this alternative plan, but we know they never bothered to ask God about it. So Abraham's still learning to trust God with all of his heart and not lean on his own understanding. What Abraham didn't understand is that nothing is impossible with God, that he keeps his word, that he fulfills his purpose. And we can see that in time, Abraham did learn to have patience, to 
trust, not in his own understanding, but in God's perfect timing and in his perfect way. To the point that when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, the son of promise, he obeyed him. He did what God asked him to do, even when he didn't understand, because he believed that God would be faithful in ways that were beyond his comprehension. We, we see that because in Hebrews chapter 11, which we will look at uh, here coming soon, it says, but by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. That's a, that's a promise from God. He considered then that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a tithe. Abraham believed that God would fulfill his promise even if he had to do the impossible. Raising his child from the dead in order to fulfill the promise that he had made. He was convinced that God never fails to fulfill any promise he's ever made. That was his conviction. Look at verse 17. Based on that example, it says in verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus, as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the same way that God was faithful to his promises to Abraham, the writer of Hebrews wants to understand he is equally as faithful to you and I as heirs of that promise. You see, we're included. We're, we're a part of this. Galatians chapter 3.29 says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. You're one of the sands of the seashore. You're one of the stars of the heavens. According to his promise. Paul describes it to the Romans as having been grafted into that tree through faith. So like Abraham, we should believe that God is faithful to fulfill what he says he will do. The writer says that, that that faith is based on two unchangeable truths. And if you look closely in our passage, he, he, he points to those. It's the unchangeable truth of God's word and the unchangeable truth of God's promise or God's purpose. So the unchangeable truth of God's word, the unchangeable truth of God's purpose, both of which were established from before the world began. We see that in 1 Peter 1.18. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers because of the presence of sin, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, 
For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So before mankind was created, now get this, before mankind was created, God had a plan for mankind. Knowing full well that we would live in selfish, sinful rebellion. And the sacrifice, would, would, there would be a sacrifice that would be required of his son for the forgiveness of those sins. God made a promise to bring salvation to the world, a promise that was made before anything was made. God never fails to fulfill any promise he's ever made. He always keeps his word. Because in the perfection of his character, he cannot lie. We see that in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. It says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised. Here it is again. Before the beginning of time. So that's really important because God knew what was going to happen before we could ever earn or deserve what he gives us with unmerited favor and grace. Because all of this was determined before the world began. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It does not fail. That's why it says in verse 18, to take refuge in God's promises. See, it's important for us to, to not try to use human understanding to discern or determine what God will do. We believe what Romans 8.28 says, that he works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to, there it is, his purpose. One of the unchangeable truths. The unchangeable purpose of God based on the unchangeable truth of God's word. We trust in his infinite wisdom and we don't lean on our own human understanding. As we see in verse 18, we take hold of the hope that is set before us. A hope, verse 19 describes, as an anchor for our soul. And like those buoys held by that anchor on the bottom of the lake, it's not going to move. That hope is deep. It is strong. It is secure. And notice that the, the anchor is not just some abstract thought that you're supposed to kind of come up with your imagination and, and just kind of think about what that might be. The hope is a real person. That anchor is Jesus Christ. It says that he's the one, as it says in verse 19, who enters within the veil. Now, the Jewish audience would have known exactly what he was referencing here as they remember what was happening in the times of the tabernacle and the temple. Because behind the veil was the Holy of Holies. The very place where God's presence and his glory was known to dwell. And this is where the high priest... Remember we talked about this. On the Day of Atonement would enter into that Holy of Holies one time a year, bringing with him a blood, the blood of a sacrifice made on behalf of the sins of all the people. And the author is pointing to that picture that, that had to be present in their mind, and he's saying, that's what Jesus did for us. He went behind the veil, offering his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And, and, and that righteousness is what allows us to live eternally in God's presence. It's what we talked about a few weeks ago, being able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's why. Not because of what we've done for him, but because of what he's done on our behalf. That is the hope set before us. So Jesus is the anchor of our soul, and he sits at the right hand of God. We are to take hold of that hope, a hope that is eternally tethered to heaven. That's where the anchor is, and that's the hope that we are to grab hold of, held by that hope that is steadfast and secure, strengthened by the unfailing promises of God. And so as we kind of put this into practice in our daily lives, I want to take us back. If you'll remember a few weeks ago, I showed you that Rembrandt portrait. You remember that? It was depicting the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And, and you remember, as we talked about that, how the disciples who were experienced fishermen, right, had become panicked because they had never seen anything like this and they were convinced they were going to die. All the while, Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. That is, until one of the disciples awoke him and he said to him, don't you care that we're going to die? He didn't say we might die or we could die. This was a certain reality for them. They knew that they were not going to make it out of that storm alive. The boat was breaking up. It, it was taking on water. Mark tells us in his gospel that in that moment, Jesus stood and he rebuked the winds and the waves. Hush, be still, or more literally, be calm and be quiet. I love what Tim Keller, he says, he says that Jesus in that moment spoke to a hurricane as if he was speaking to a child. Be still, be quiet. And instantly, they obeyed. The winds stopped. The, the water calmed. The scripture tells us that in that moment, the disciples were more terrified at what had just happened than they were in the middle of the storm. Right? And they believed they were going to die in the middle of the storm. Jesus turns to them and he says, why are you afraid? Why do you have no faith? But as I think about that, I wonder, faith in what? Faith that eventually the storm will die down and it'll be okay? Faith that no one's going to get hurt so there's, there's no reason to worry? Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. I think he wants them to have faith that his word is true and that his purpose will be fulfilled. He told his disciple, let's go to the other side of the sea. He had told his disciples that there was kingdom work to be done and his time had not yet come. Just moments before this event, he had talked to the centurion. You remember this encounter? 
where the centurion had a, a servant who was sick and dying and he wanted Jesus to, to heal him. And so Jesus said, well, let me come to your house. And the centurion said, so, no, you don't need to do that. You see, I'm an authority over lots of people and I just say the word and they do what I say and your authority is much greater than mine. If you just say the word, he will be healed. If he, Jesus, has the authority to heal a dying person by just speaking the word, how much more so can he calm the winds and the waves or anything else he wants to do? Because there is no authority greater than his. But we might look at that scene and think, well, gosh, the, the disciples were experienced fishermen. Surely, surely they could have done something to help in their situation. Like maybe if they did have an anchor, they could just throw it over and, and somehow gain stability of the boat. But in reality, that would have only made their situation worse. They didn't need an anchor. They needed Jesus. And they needed to trust that he was faithful to his word, that his purpose would be fulfilled, that he keeps them safe and secure. As we see in Psalm 62, 6, that he alone is our rock and salvation. He alone is our stronghold. And in him we will not be shaken. And the same is true for us. And again, not because we can make sense of some of the unimaginable, difficult situations that we find ourselves in. Okay? We've all been in those places, too dark to see, too unclear to understand. And if we try to apply our human reasoning to somehow muster up enough to get through it, we're in trouble. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for in the conviction of things not yet seen. We've got to rely on something outside of ourselves. If Jesus is in our boat, if he is present in our life, we have nothing to fear. We don't need to rely on anything else that promises us security. We don't need to rely on the approval from other people, hoping that we can gain some security from that. We don't need to rely on financial security, that, that our future would be stable. We don't, we don't have to rely on any of those things. Not even physical health. In fact, these are anchors that, if we rely on them, only make things worse. We, just like the disciples, need to rely on Jesus, looking to him in the storms that we face, finding refuge in his promises, taking hold of the hope that is set before us, and then holding loosely to the things of this world. Let me just say here that sometimes... That's as simple as what we see in Scripture when the man says, Lord, would you help me in my unbelief? I believe. I really do. But will you help me in my unbelief? And that may be the only prayer you can muster, and I'm telling you it's enough because he hears you and he's with you. Jesus is our sure and steady anchor, and he will never be removed. He is faithful to his word, and he will fulfill his purpose. And so as we finish up. Brian, you can go ahead and come up with your team as we finish this last song. But as they do, I want to just encourage you to look closely at the words of this song that we chose to close our service with because the words will mirror the passage that we just looked at together. And so as we sing these words, let me ask you to turn them into your own personal prayer for yourself. And you might even be prayerful for the people around you 
who need this truth now more than ever. And let me just give you the stanza from this song. It says, Christ, the hope of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. We will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Amen? Let's stand and sing together. Amen, that's good news. And I just want to encourage you that in your dark moments, in your daily life, that is absolutely true for each and every one of us who are in Christ. And I want you to understand that this is not, again, some imaginary hope that we serve the living Christ who is present in our hearts and in our lives through the work of His Spirit, who is present in the power of His Word, who is present in the lives of His people. So look all around you. You can't miss Him. He is visible and evident. He is strong. He is secure. He is our anchor, and He will not be removed. Amen? Amen. Go with that hope. Have a great day.